John Dennehy, a series about the potential of Web3, especially in education. I'm Vridi, I'm the founder of K20 Educators. We're building an open eduverse for educators to connect with each other, access resources, and engage in new learning experiences. John, what about you? Yeah, so my name is John Dennehy. Uh, I've been a journalist and I dabble a little, little bit in education, uh, but right now what I'm focused on is education, Bitcoin education in El Salvador. So I'm currently based in San Salvador, which is the capital down here. And uh, I'm working on a project called My First Bitcoin or Mi Primer Bitcoin, which is focused on just getting people started with Bitcoin, uh, allowing them to take their first step in a comfortable environment. Um, I, I should add that, that El Salvador legalized Bitcoin. They made it legal tender here in September. So it's it's really important that people are educated about how to use it here. So kind of a crazy thing here is that John and I have been uh, friends for about 10 years, probably more than that. And last year, he basically was like, hey, Rudy, so I'm going to move to El Salvador because, you know, Bitcoin is, is, is my life and I'm going to go down there. <laughs> and um, immediately I was just like, well, that's very on brand for you, but also kind of nuts. And over the last like four or five months, he's given me updates on all the incredible things that are happening in Salvador uh, related to Bitcoin and related to cryptocurrency, but also related to the organization that he started um, to basically educate people about crypto. So before we get launched into this conversation, um, I would love for John to give us, John, could you give us a like just a quick overview, like almost like a temperature check of like what is going on in El Salvador right now? What's like the latest? And um, pretend this is like a phone call we're having uh, on a Tuesday afternoon, which we do every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, around this time too. So <laughs> um, yeah, so El Salvador, I think is, for me, it's it's the most exciting place in the world right now. Um, so they adopted Bitcoin. The president here is very popular and also very powerful, like towards authoritarianism. Um, so he was able, and he likes Bitcoin, so he was able to push through this bill very quickly and make Bitcoin legal tender. And there's, you know, there's pros and cons to, to that, and we won't get into that right now. But uh, so it happened very quickly, and the government has their own app called Chivo, uh, which allows people to accept Bitcoin and, and either store dollars or Bitcoin on their phone. Um, and initially, like in September, when it launched, there was almost no infrastructure. So the government app uh, was was not working very well, if at all. Um, and no one knew anything about Bitcoin here. So it was it was really interesting to be in a country that had just legalized Bitcoin where no one knew what Bitcoin was. Um, so it, we've we've progressed quite a bit since then. I mean, the government app has gotten better. There's a lot of non-government apps uh that do point of sale that just you know have have a presence here for 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 various other things with bitcoin that that have really grown in the last few months um the education project that that i'm a part of me from our bitcoin we've we've grown like i mean we double in size like every two weeks it seems um so 
so we, we've come a long way since then. And the way that it stands now is you could use Bitcoin in most places, uh, not 100% of the places. So a larger place like, you know, uh, American fast food is super popular here. So there's tons of McDonald's and Pizza Hut and Burger King and all that. In all those places, all the chains, um, whether it's an American chain or, or you know, a Central American chain, a, a Salvadorian chain, all, all the places that have multiple locations, it's it's a very safe bet that you could use Bitcoin to pay there. Um, in smaller places, like an independent shop where there's only one, then it's, it's kind of hit or miss. Uh, many of them don't accept Bitcoin, some do. Uh, technically, they're obligated to accept it, but that's, you know, they're not enforcing it for like a, like a, bodega sort of shop john uh, quick question so yep. if like mcdonald's and pizza huts are accepting bitcoin in el salvador does that mean that from like a central entity perspective they have had to like enable cryptocurrency infrastructure that you know they can basically deploy to any country that wants to use bitcoin or is it because it's a franchise model each like franchise has its own infrastructure for for payments no, so so each each chain, you know, I don't know how many McDonald's there are here, but there's there's a lot. There maybe is are a hundred in the country, just taking a guess. Um, and they all use the same system. I'm pretty sure that they do it uh, nationwide. Uh, I know like they use Open Node and Starbucks, for example. They use um, a server called uh, Ibex Mercado. Uh, so so I'm pretty sure they do it on a on a nationwide scale, how they implement it for all their stores. So yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of, of Bitcoin being legal tender here is like Starbucks or McDonald's or Burger King, any of these places, they have experience with it now. You know, uh, there were there were some, some bumps and some kinks in the road initially, but I think they probably understand it a lot better now than they did before. And they have, you know, some small corporate team that that is leading that. And so if they wanted to roll it out in another country, then they already have a blueprint for it. So I think, I think actually one of the great things about El Salvador is, is, uh, you know, there, there's a template now for, for not just other nation states to adopt it, but, you know, just corporations or businesses or like it, we're, we're kind of um, creating a lot of precedents here. Yeah. Which is kind of insane. Cause like, if you think about, uh, the use of cryptocurrency a year ago or two years ago, it was like slim to none. And now we're all talking about like this cryptocurrency feature. And then, you know, you send me these like amazing photos, like especially in the beginning where like there's like, you know, these little stalls that sell churros or that sell like, you know, um, ice cream or ices that mm -hmm. also have signs that say we accept Bitcoin, which kind of blows my mind because it yeah. feels almost like a like a very, you know, futuristic kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like my first my first week here, even before it was legal tender, um, you know, I walked by someone who is just selling bracelets, you know, that they, they, they make their own bracelets and they sell it on the street. Uh, you know, they just set up at a, at a busy street corner. And like he had a sign like, we accept Bitcoin or I accept Bitcoin or whatever. So I was like, cool, I don't even need a bracelet, but um, I really want this experience of, of like... <laughs> of like sending some some satoshis over the lightning network to this to this to this guy that's just selling bracelets on the street side. That's awesome. 
So, yeah. so what's like the it, latest? It, what's like what's like the newest thing that's happening in El Salvador with crypto? Like, are you guys um, have you guys discovered any new organizations or like you know what, what's like the the newest and the latest going on there? Um, so I think I think initially, so September seventh was uh, was when the law went into effect. I think initially there there you know shout out to Ibex Mercado, which is a, a startup from Guatemala, who they were here on day one, like they set up the point of sale infrastructure for a lot of stores on day one since Chivo didn't exist before then. Um, but since that you know on that day there was very little happening. I think what it was, was people, a lot of Bitcoin individuals and Bitcoin companies were taking a sort of wait and see approach because it sounded kind of crazy. Like, wait a second, out of nowhere, El Salvador is going to adopt Bitcoin. Like, how is that going to work? Um, so I think there was a little bit of, of disbelief. And, uh, you know, a lot of people wanted to wanted to to let other people go first and, and see how it how it went before they came in. But there were a bunch of conferences here in November. Um, that brought in a lot of international people and a lot of like vendors, like Bitcoin businesses and all that. And I think that was the first taste that a lot of people had, a lot of these businesses um, had uh, of El Salvador. And like all the ones that I've talked to have been like, wow, it's great. Uh, you know, we're, we want to set up offices, like we're, we're trying to find office space and we want to hire people locally. And um, so it seems like now, a lot is is happening you know there was a little bit of a delay but um but now this year like january february march like quarter one of this year i think there's going to be a big explosion like even even just uh just the billboards around the city like the billboards are maybe i don't know maybe i just notice it more but i want to say that the most common thing that you see on a billboard is advertising for some bitcoin service whether it's uh you know, like a point of sale system or whether it's a, a cryptocurrency exchange or, or or something like that. There's like all over the city, billboards are just like Bitcoin this, Bitcoin that, um, which is which is growing. It wasn't like that in September, or October. That's incredible. Um, well, one of the most interesting things for me about blockchain and about Web3 generally is um, really the use case for education. I've been exploring quite a bit um, on how like we can leverage this technology to improve educational systems. Um, and so I guess I'd love for us to get into like, you know, how we think blockchain is uh, going to change the way the world evolves. And John, if you want to talk about like, you know, different use cases outside of education, you could. Um, but what the, the three sort of like things that I've been diving really deep into are NFTs in education, DAOs in education and DeFi um, mm -hmm. in education. And um, yeah, so I, I I I'd love to go into any one of those. What do you think we should go into first? Um, let's go into either DAOs or DeFi because I think that's that's like I'm I'm really excited about um, as a tool for empowerment. How yeah. how blockchain can be a tool for empowerment, and I think okay. those two fit. So really you know well. what? Let, let's go to DeFi because um, we're actually launching a newsletter on Intro to DeFi tomorrow, and I've actually done a crazy amount of research on this for the last okay, few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I have discovered that, first of all, um, there's like a lot of interesting uh, ideas out there for how schooling can be decentralized and how colleges and courses can be unbundled so that you can pay for them separately. But there 
really is like almost zero content out there about how DeFi can change the funding models of schools. Is that weird? Like I, I, I'm really surprised because DeFi could be pretty game changing for any industry, but for education mm -hmm. especially, it could like totally change it. Um, so I've discovered a, a few different things around that, uh, which I can go into unless you have a, yeah. a thought about this. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Start, start us off okay. with you, please. So, um, so for education, right? So where the, the way that like the education model, especially public education works, is that there's like three entities that provide funding to a, uh, to a public school or a public district, the state your local government and um, your uh, federal government. The feds actually give about 8% of that funding, uh, make up that 8% of the funding, state makes up about 48% and your local government makes about uh, 42%, 40, whatever the remaining is, 40 something percent. And um, 46, I think. And uh, th that combination then goes into your district and your district then makes like a bunch of decisions about where that funding should go based on wholesale costs. So like a school will receive, um, you know, a set amount of funding, but like 75% of that funding, a principal can't even use autonomously because the district has already decided that this is the transportation we're gonna use and it's gonna be used across the district. These are the textbooks we're gonna use. This is the health and safety measures we're gonna use. These are the uh, facilities and the energy costs we're gonna use. And so it basically like, goes into these like, you know, district-wide wholesale costs, which is obviously like a good way to spend the money so that you're like paying less for, you know, a bulk order. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously the district will take like a cut of the funds that were received from uh, the, the taxes um, so that they can manage their own district. So then the, the, the principal gets about, uh, you know, 25% of the, you know, funds that are then diluted by the district because that's the amount that they actually have um, uh, autonomy with. And so that's what they can spend on supplies, on instruction, things like that. And so what, what happens there is that basically there's like very little autonomy for the principal or for anybody in the school to be able to do anything with those funds. And there isn't a huge amount of incentive to increase the amount of funding that schools get because like, there isn't a huge amount of, you know, direct to consumer benefit because all of the funds are sort of going to these like facilities entities, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about like the DeFi model and I actually met with a, a founder yesterday from Berkeley. She's this, you know, amazing student at Berkeley who's starting a nonprofit. And um, she was thinking about how to like sort of pivot that model. And um, I started thinking about it yesterday more too. And what I realized was, you know, it would be so amazing if we could actually create incentives for people to not only contribute to schools, but be able to contribute their votes to schools. So if we were to turn, I know this is like getting really heady for everybody in the room, <laughs> um, but if we were to, if we were to think about schools as either DAOs or even just decentralized entities, and we could actually contribute to schools in a way that our interest it for any cryptocurrency that we staked would actually go to school expenses and then we could vote for those um, school expenses for where those expenses went like there would be so much more autonomy for how those expenses were used i'm gonna pause there um but i know yeah yeah <laughs> no a hundred percent so i think um i think that that that's it, it would serve a, a couple of purposes at the same time it would also like I'm a big fan. This is how I learn. I learn by doing. 
Um, and I think one thing that's lacking in the education system is is financial literacy, right? Like we don't we don't learn about um, about money really, mm-hmm. uh, and this would be a great way for students to to actually use it and see it firsthand and learn financial literacy because maybe I, I don't know uh, what the audience is like here, but I don't know if it's worth taking a step back to just like very uh very briefly just give a definition of what a DAO is and what DeFi is does that make sense yeah you know it's so funny that you did that because i'm usually the one that always says that line um (laughs) so thanks for (laughs) catching me on that um i'll define DAO. you define DeFi. DAOs are basically the the simplest way to describe them is they're a community with a treasury that lives on chain So basically the community owns the treasury and can make a decision on how that treasury is allocated. So like imagine a DAO being almost like a co-op, but the co-op actually is a complete flatarchy and no one is in charge. Um, There's leadership, but no one like has more of a voting right than anybody else. Yeah, and and DAO uh, stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Wow, I'm really missing the mark today. Thank you, John. (laughs) (laughs) um now i i I know that i know that these terms could be like really intimidating for for new people uh so DeFi stands for decentralized finance and what that means in a in a nutshell is uh is it's just financial instruments that um don't rely on a third party so it's something that that you could do on your own. Uh, oftentimes, they rely on smart contracts on a blockchain. So, for example, in the in the legacy financial world, um, a lot of these instruments. And why I think DeFi is really exciting is because it it really lowers the barrier to entry. So, in the legacy financial world, um, if you wanted to do if you wanted to do something like, I don't know, if you wanted to bet uh, either on the positive or the negative for a stock or a commodity or or so many things, um, then there are these advanced instruments that you would use through a brokerage, through a bank. And that's limited, right? So it's like only for high net worth individuals, only for people that have like a million dollars or more in, in um in their account that are approved and this and that, like these are tools that, that are not available to the average person and definitely not available to like students. Um, so with decentralized finance, anything that could be turned into a smart contract is, is, is possible. And basically everything could be turned into a smart contract. So instead of going through this intermediary, instead of going through this brokerage, uh, there, there could exist a smart contract that says, you know, you put X number of Ethereum, for example, on uh, bet in that it could be anything. Bet in that um, you know the price of corn is is going to be higher one year from today than it is now. Uh, and if it is higher, then then you win. You know, two Ethereum, you win the bet. And if it isn't, then you know there's somebody on the other side of that bet that wins, and you you lose your should i be betting on corn (laughs) i mean it's just an example there's a lot of corn down here basically everything is everything revolves around corn like all the staple foods and um i ate a lot of corn (laughs) so i guess corn's on my mind i don't know (laughs) 
Yeah, and then another another use case for DeFi. Um, so one of the the coolest things that I've read about DeFi is that we can access a global currency that is not uh, associated with a nation. And so, mm -hmm. like, imagine being able to access a currency that's based on utility and community, and not necessarily like what country you're in, and therefore mm -hmm. not having to incur like international trans uh, transaction costs or, or uh, conversion costs. Yeah. If I could like stand on my soapbox for a second, um, what one of the things that excites me most about about Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency and blockchain and um, all of this is that it treats us all the same. And that doesn't sound like a big deal until you 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 break it down a little bit. So like Bitcoin or, you know, whether we're talking about other cryptocurrencies, too, I'll, I'll just say Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin doesn't care where you were born. It doesn't care what visa you have in your passport. It doesn't care how old you are. It doesn't care what your gender is. It doesn't care who you voted for. It doesn't care what your political beliefs are. It treats everyone exactly the same. And again, that is revolutionary. That has never happened before. Every system that we have treats you differently based on a variety of other factors it does not treat everyone the same um and that that is that that's that's massive that is a massive thing and it and it can't because it's it's decentralized right so like the point of decentralization is there isn't a person or a group that controls it and can say you know what we want to encourage this or we want to discourage that or we don't like these people we like these people like there's no one that even can change that, even even if they wanted to. Like it, it treats everyone the same, John, and that is. What, what about though, like the centralized servers that are um, making crypto and blockchain accessible to people by putting like a service in between blockchain and a person. So, like, can you give me an example like of that? Like any of the DeFi services or even, um, like, in any type of app, you know, you can think about OpenSea as, like, a centralized server that lives on chain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the reality is that, um, like, I'm very pro-decentralization, but there are times, I mean, it's a trade-off, right? So there are times where, where it makes sense to kind of, like, have something of a hybrid model um where some aspects are decentralized and other aspects for you know efficiency purposes are are centralized and and even then i think we could like there's you could buy cryptocurrency on a on you know coinbase or something like that which is a which is a centralized exchange um and i'm not i'm pro coinbase like i'm happy that coinbase exists uh, but, but, um, I think what's important is you don't have to use it. Right. So like I have my cryptocurrency in a hardware wallet where I totally control it. There's no, there's no third party that could tell me how to use it, that could freeze it, that could do anything to it. Um, so I think it's important that the option is there. It, it doesn't mean that everyone has to, has to be this like decentralized purist, because sometimes it, you know, there there are advantages to, to centralized services sometimes, but I think it's important that that uh, that it's optional in a sense.
Yeah, I hear you on that. And I think that, um, so going back to like the education piece, I think the the power with decentralization in education is like being able to own your educational uh, identity. I think that's one of the things that I think has been most problematic with education where like you are sort of beholden to the, uh, not only the programs and the academics and the infrastructure, but also the like academic identity that is bestowed upon you by different institutions. So I could mm-hmm. basically like have a, a uh, what do you call it, a report card um, in K-12 that, you know, tells me that I was like, you know, terrible at chemistry and really great at art and so on and so forth. And that kind of like determines what type of university I get into, um, which could decrease the uh, type of learning that I want to have, that, that could sort of diminish the type of learning I want to have. But in a mm-hmm. decentralized model with schooling, like what, what, what can happen is, you know, you take the kinds of courses that you think are best suited for you, especially in, in college and beyond, and you, the credentials that you're earning will live on chain and you can basically craft your own academic resume that describes all the things that you're really good at instead of relying on like a, uh, like a, you know, university name that is respected. Instead, you'll be able to rely on the talent and the skills and the, the proficiencies that you've accumulated from the courses you've taken all over different universities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gives it gives more autonomy to the individual. Yeah. Um, so for the DeFi example, I'm going to like try to explain that one more time just because it is such a brilliant model. And um, it's from a it's an organization called Satchel. And um, there's a the founder is called Daria. She's uh, based in Berkeley and she actually explained this whole thing to me yesterday. And I thought it was pretty brilliant. So the model that she's come up with um, and you guys should check it out and support her if you can is uh, she basically is ideating this like alternative funding model for schools using DeFi. So her thought is, um, let's say you have a community member, whether it's like a parent or a school leader or whomever, um, maybe it's a politician, they provide Satchel, this you know organization that she's founded, $100. And then Satchel lends that $100 to a DeFi service and um, that DeFi service actually produces a 4% interest or yield. And so the community member can actually get their $100 back and they'll get 50% of that yield, so they'll get two more dollars, and then 50% of that yield will go to the school. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's to me it's like so brilliant because not only does a community member get all of their money back, but they make money and the school that they're contributing to also makes money. Um, and then the community member can basically vote for how that money is spent in the school. And there's like a different, you know, different variations of this, whether you're a non-community member or you're a donor or whatever, and she has like a bunch of different models around it. But I just think that that's like such an interesting and creative way to fund a school. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that that we've thought about with uh, My First Bitcoin is um, to implement a way that there already exists something now, but I think it will it will grow in the future. Um, that you could essentially stake a cryptocurrency. I think it only exists for stable tokens now, but that you could you could stake a cryptocurrency. So say you have a hundred dollars and the and the yield is we'll use that four percent again. Um, so if you want to donate to to the project, then you could stake your hundred dollars and that four percent. So you have complete control over that 
hundred dollar value that you have. Um, you could take it out whenever you want. Uh, no one could do anything with it. But the the yield from that you could direct to another source. So you could direct it to to our project, right? To me, Premier Bitcoin, and it's a way to donate without ever giving up any of your own capital. Like it, it it's just, it's it's really interesting. Um, I think what's really interesting is that 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 DeFi and blockchain and all this, like it enables a lot of possibilities that just didn't exist before. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. Well, uh, one of the things that like I want to, before we go into questions from the audience, one of the things that I um, want to do with every podcast episode, um, John, I want you to tell us a story <laughs> of your early crypto days. So, so just context for the audience. Um, John has been in crypto for like 10 plus years, and he is probably the OG crypto guy that, and I, I don't know anybody else um, in crypto or anybody else in my life that has been in crypto as long as John. And John has told me the wildest stories about the kinds of things that he engaged in um, with cryptocurrency like way back when. And so I think it would be such a delight for us to actually like go into some of those memories. And, and if you could give us like a really brief story every episode um, that we could end with. I would love that before we go into questions. John, do you have a, a story for us? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, there's plenty of stories. Uh, early early crypto and really Bitcoin, because at the time it was really just Bitcoin that existed, was, uh, was, a, was a really interesting space. Um, yeah, so actually the, the, I mean, maybe it makes sense to start at the beginning. I'm not even sure if I've told you this story, Rudy, but um, the very first Bitcoin that I ever bought. Uh, have I told you about that? Yeah. So, so I just, you know, Bitcoin was mentioned in passing in an article that I read and, and uh, you know, I looked up the white paper and read about it and it immediately resonated with me. Um, at this point, this, like I had already, I was living in Ecuador uh, previous to this and I was deported um, when a new government took over, I mean, that's a whole separate story. Actually, I wrote a book about it, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, they, they froze, they, they seized all my assets and everything. So I was already pretty wary of, of the control of, of, uh, of centralized institutions with, with their money. Um, when I heard about Bitcoin, so I was, I was like, I was, I was a sympathetic audience. Um, so literally the first day I heard about Bitcoin, I was like, yes, I want this. This is, this is the future that I want to succeed. So um, not knowing that it would succeed, knowing that at the time I thought there was a good chance that it wouldn't, but you know, to put my money where my mouth was, so to say, I was like, yeah, so let me, uh, let me get some, let me play around with it and let me try to support the ecosystem. Um, so there weren't things like Coinbase didn't exist at this time. This, is, uh, this would be very early 2013. Um, so I guess it would be nine years ago now. Uh, so the way that I bought my first Bitcoin was I had to go to a bank and I think it was Bank of America and deposit a specific amount. Like I couldn't choose the amount. Um, it was actually, I'm looking at it now. It was $153 and 57 cents and it was anonymous, right? Like my name wasn't attached to it. And the way they identified uh, that it was me 
was the specific amount. So no one else would be depositing $153.57. Somebody else might deposit $153 and like 44 cents, for example. Um, but it was that specific number amount that identified my account. So I deposited, which at the time I didn't really have any money. $153 was probably basically, you know, all I could afford. Um, it was probably like half of my savings account at the time. Uh, so I deposited it. I bought, uh, I think I could buy like two or three Bitcoins with it at the time. They were like $50 each. Um, so I, I bought the as much Bitcoin as I could with that money. And then the very next day, the exchange was hacked and it went under. Um, and I and I lost, I lost, you know, I lost my Bitcoin. I lost oh the, the dollars and the Bitcoin literally the next day. Um, and I think I think it's it, it's kind of like I think of it as an important lesson. And then like immediately I was like, okay, well, how can I get some more? You know, like I, I still, you know, I, I knew that this was a risky thing, um, and I never. You know, I didn't care about making money off of it. I, I just wanted to, I want to understand the system a little better by using it. And, I, and, and I, I'm pretty sure I want to see it succeed. But I, I think it's important. Um, I think it's an important story in that if I just cared about profit, then I probably would have left. I probably would have left Bitcoin and been like, okay, this isn't for me. You know, I lost some money. I'm going to cut my losses here. Um but like I never saw it as as a as a way to make dollars. I've always seen crypto as a way to leave dollars, not to have more dollars, but to use the the fiat system to use these centralized systems less, not to have more of it, not to have more of a say in those systems, but to to exit it. To me, it's an exit strategy. Mm -hmm. Super fascinating. Um, well, thank you for that story. Uh, so now we can actually open up. The floor for anyone that has any questions we can talk about uh web3 blockchain education uh whatever you guys are interested in hi guys hi jay thank you for having me uh i would like to get your opinion on something uh so i, I tuned in because uh, i saw the title which was uh, web3 in education now uh, do you guys think, like, this is my personal opinion, but I wanted to see how other people also think about it. Do you think that the world, or at least the tech community in general, is focusing too much on blockchain and decentralizing? Because all this decentralization might be good, but to a limit. Because, for example, uh, if you take in recent history the, the war in Syria, there were a lot of uh, bad people, uh, you know, uh, sharing some wrong information in order to get people to come and fight in Syria. Now, this was when on a web that's still centralized and the governments had like still a hard time to, to combat that information. Now, if you decentralize that, then are you going to give a platform to terrorists and bad people and wrong information and then the governments can't even fight that information anymore and people are going to have are going to be educated into something wrong i don't know if you like guys catch what i'm trying to say but uh, i hope that's like clear enough yeah jay there's so many layers to what you're saying and it's such an excellent question john you want to get started uh yeah sure um yeah, so I, I think I think that's a that's a really um, 
interesting point there. Uh, but I, I'm going to go ahead and say that I think, if anything, this decentralization is more important in this situation because the way that it works in in centralized institutions, whether it's like, you know, well, I'll say Facebook, right? Like we kind of rely on Facebook to tell us what's right and wrong. Um, and because of that, we, I, I don't think we really flex the, the, our critical thinking um, muscles enough because of that. And I think in a, in a more decentralized system, you know, would there be people that, that try to take advantage of that and, you know, spread uh, disinformation or, or misinformation? Would it be easier for them to do it? On the one hand, it would be easier for them to do it. But I think we collectively with time would be less susceptible to it because if we live in a world where where we are, I mean, it's all about incentives, right? So like if we're incentive, incentivized to 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 learn about that and to understand it for ourselves rather than relying on a third party to make those decisions for us, then I think like we will um, will be a, more conscious and we'll be able to recognize it easier because I think the alternative is dangerous in that, uh, you know, Facebook or, or whoever, they decide what is misinformation and what isn't. And we have to trust that they will, they will have our best interest in mind. And I don't think that's always true. Facebook doesn't have our best interest in mind. Facebook has their best interest in mind. It might overlap with ours often, but it's they're not thinking about us. They're thinking about themselves. Um, so, um, yeah. And I think uh, there is something to be said about incentive systems. So, like, you know, why are the hackers hacking? Why is the government that's corrupt being corrupt? And it's because they're incentivized to do so, right? Like they're gaining something from that, whether it's money or power or whatever. And so I think the what decentralized decentralization can do is distribute that uh, that power or distribute the incentives so that people are not only gaining more incentives, but actually have access to the incentives that they want to have access without being corrupt, right? Yeah, I think that the, how the incentives align is really important. Yeah. Um, and they don't always align, I think, in the best way in, in the model that we have currently. But I mean, like DAOs are a form of government, right? It's like mm -hmm. a different form of government. It's not, it's not the, you know, it's not like the exactly like what we have today but um but i i think DAOs are 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 great you know where where there's like more localized governments um if they're done right um yeah. i'll pass the the mic to benjamin thanks jay hello um yes it's an interesting title the uh, the web3 in education i do have a uh a question about um Accredit accreditation, um, a decentralized accreditation. I know that the way that you were explaining um, the the kind of uh, the blockchain as being a sort of a funding model for schools, but I was kind of thinking at it at a different way, which was more you can learn from anywhere, but it's all about how that test or that accreditation of how you pass the exam and how that can be decentralized even from a school perspective. Um, I'm just wondering if you guys have any ideas of that. 
Yeah, totally. We've we've talked a lot about um, in previous, uh, you know, podcasts at AMAs, and we'll talk about this exact topic um, next Friday as well. Um, so putting credentials uh, into smart contracts uh, so that they can live on chain is actually a really great way to decentralize your academic portfolio. And so instead of having to call your bursar to get your uh, transcript or having to call your K-12 schools to get your like report card, you can actually have all of your credentials live on chain. And that does a few different things. One, you are in ownership of your academic identity, which is a massive deal because you can actually share your academic identity with whomever you want without having to like go through a system or a process. You can also build on your um, academic portfolio for the for the rest of your life, right? So you can have a credential on there when you're in K-12, you can have a few credentials when you're in high school and college and so on and so forth. But when you're like 85 and you're still learning, you can put a credential on there. So like having this like lifelong academic portfolio is pretty powerful and magical. And then the third thing is um, it also allows you to focus your portfolio on the learning and not necessarily on um, like which university you went to. Um, and this is going to take a little bit of a culture shift, too, because, you know, you could easily say, well, if I have a Harvard, Harvard credential on my uh, portfolio, that means more than if I have a state school credential. And I, and I think that the conversation needs to move towards, like, what does that credential actually mean and how are we attaining that credential? Like, is that credential from a test? Is that credential from, like, a um, some sort of, like, you know, performative activity? Is it from a project that you had to show? And so I think if we were to think about credentialing, one of the main things that we would have to, like, resolve first, um, aside from, like, the technology, is what value and what, like, uh, what are you trying to show with that credential and how can you make sure that what you're trying to show is of quality, right? Because if you're just trying to show completion of a course or, you know, getting an A on a test, that, that that's not going to really mean anything, especially if you're getting credentials from many different places. Cool. Yes. Um, I actually hate tests myself and uh, hated <laughs> kind of schools and tests. Who, who likes <laughs> tests though? Like really, does anyone like tests? Well, exactly. I don't even think that tests are even the best ways of doing it. You know, um, I mean, I have a son now and, you know, he has to come home with uh, work and kind of, you know, learn these tests and stuff. And um, I don't know, I think that is terrible. I think a project based uh, learning is so much better. And I've actually seen it with him as well. Like he will sit down and he's learning coding. He's nine years old, uh, but he's learning that through Roblox because it's a project that he wants to do. So it's, it's something that he wants to uh, complete and get to a particular point. So he has to learn coding to do it. And so, um, it would be nice if somehow that can be accredited, you know, to um, a skill and um, a project-based kind of solution. I always believe um, that I think education should be more uh, project-based rather than uh, rope learning or kind of things like that. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, the, the magic of doing something like that is that imagine what the difference would be in your son's academic portfolio on chain having a link to his entire world that he's created versus having a badge that he earned to create that entire world 
like what would be more valuable for somebody who's looking at his portfolio? And I hope the answer is actually looking at the entire world because the badge really doesn't really mean anything if the person who's viewing his credential doesn't know what that leads to, right? So that's what I meant by like, can we just put like the performative thing on the uh, blockchain instead of having to put like a like a badge or a credential that, you know, you know, that sort of says that he did that thing. Uh, Suman, you're up next. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I'll try to keep my questions short. Uh, I have um, a two-part question. Um, uh, I know we talked about credentials and uh, some of those things, but um, going beyond credentials, are, are there any um, problems um, that you have come across or you have seen uh, in education um, that benefit most from the decentralization or uh, using technologies um, like DeFi, uh, DeFi and others? So that's one question. And uh, the other question I have is uh, even probably more basic than that, uh, just for curiosity's sake, how much of uh, you know decentralization in, I mean, let's take education, um, is really tied to um, something like blockchain or, uh, or any of those technologies versus are there other sorts of um, decentralization efforts happening, which are not tied to a certain, uh, you know, a technology or um, like blockchain or anything like that, and that you know of. Awesome, John. Do you have anything to add here? Um, yeah. So I guess with the with the second one, I'm not I'm not personally aware of um, you know I'm not I'm not really plugged into to that space, but uh, I I don't know of other projects that or other ways that uh, educators are using uh, decentralization outside of blockchain, but it's possible, you know, like, I think what I think all blockchain is, is a is a tool like it's not something that didn't exist before. It's just something that enables us to do things a little bit easier or more efficiently in that way. So, you know, it's, 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 um, a set of rules where you know a teacher could have could have written these rules down in the classroom and everybody gets a token and and they vote on you know how to use their class funds or whatever and they could have created something like a DAO in the past without blockchain I mean they still can um, but I think blockchain just makes it a little bit easier that it's that it's a uh, it, it makes it more manageable than than it was before it's not necessarily something brand new it's just makes an idea easier to implement yeah and then to answer your previous question Simon, uh, about like what are the problems um education especially public education is massively broken in the u.s i think it's massively broken in a lot of places and um there's like no ending to the problems that exist that could be solved with blockchain and web3 um, I think the funding model for schools can be uh, can be resolved or maybe you know enhanced by DeFi. The learning models for how you can unbundle uh, learning can be solved with uh, with DeFi with uh, with Web three. Um, the governance models of schools, the way that schools operate, and the way that um, teachers actually are incentivized to be really great teachers can be solved with DAOs. Um, 
I think uh, the way that students are actually learning in a, in, and you know, as Benjamin said, like project-based learning is so much more effective than didactic learning. Um, associating learning with performative um, uh, assessments and projects is far more effective. And so if we are able to decentralize the process of like, you know, report card and assessment, then we can actually like create a, a more powerful culture around project-based learning and things like that. So I would say like, you know, there, there's no ending to the number of problems that can be solved with, uh, with Web3 for education. And I think that kind of applies to every other industry also. Um, I think we have, you know, done incredible things with Web2 and Web1, Web1 across different industries, but we have come to a point where we now have this new technology and this new infrastructure available and we have the opportunity to evolve and it's time for us to evolve.